So we're finishing, as Mark said, our 11-week our series, Eagerly Desired, God's Gifts, God's People, God's Design. And as we come to the end of it, and I was, as I was wrestling through um, how to sort of land this series, because God has done so much, uh, really a question started coming to my mind, and, I, and I, it's a question that I think has probably been put to you before. It was probably put to you by your parents, and it's the question, are we clear? You ever had that question put to you? I had that question put to me a lot. <laughs> are we clear? And the, the question, the phrase, are we clear, it, it usually, for me at least in my life, was sort of post-discipline, uh, post-stern conversation. <laughs> but the, the phrase, are we clear, is also just sort of a moment that everybody around can share that kind of says, okay, we all have this sort of undiluted, clear understanding. Like, are we clear? Yeah, we're clear. Everybody get it? We're all on the same page. It, it communicates, this is sort of the point of choice making. There's something next, and we're all clear on what has been. And it leaves everyone deciding how they'll proceed in light of what everyone understands. So are we clear sets certain things in motion. You get an understanding of something, a a command, a situation, a circumstance, and you say, okay, in light of that, how am I going to respond? My choice that is presented to me is I can ignore what I'm clear on and proceed as if I don't have any idea or I'm actively forgetting it, or I can say in light of what I'm aware of now and what I'm clear on, I can respond in a certain way, impacted by what I'm clear on, yes? I'll give you a... I'll give you a kind of a funny example of an are we clear moment in my life. Some of you have heard this story before. I told it a couple years ago, but a lot of you have joined our church family since then. So I'll tell it again. It's also a story that's at my expense. So you know that goes a long way because I don't want any of you having uh, nothing on me to put me in my place, right? So uh, when I was 19, 20 years old, I was uh, growing up in Jacksonville, Florida. I was interning at my church that I grew up in. I was interning as an assistant youth pastor. Um, It's part of my life I've blocked out. (laughs) And I was interning alongside um, a a 19, 20-year-old girl. And we interned for the summer together. And what naturally happens when... You inter- yeah, so we started to develop feelings for one another, right? Naturally. And sort of by the end of the summer, um, I, being the upstanding, honest, upright young man that I was, made my feelings known. And I approached her, and, and, I, and I, I let her know, and she gave me the always inspiring, wonderful answer, I'll think about it. Okay, cool. We're not clear on anything yet. <laughs> And one day, at near the end of the summer, uh, we had run out to Starbucks to grab some coffee for a staff meeting that we were about to have. And while we were in my car, she turned to me and said, um, you know what, James, I have thought about it. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just not at a place where I want to date right now. And, and so, you know, my answer is, is no. And I said, okay, you know, thank you very much, whatever you say there. Not, not, to, not that any of you have ever been in that place. And I said, okay, cool, Uh, thanks for telling me, and awesome. And as I reached for the door handle to get out of the car, she said, oh, and James? And I was like, yes? Her exact words, "Uh, I didn't leave any room for hope, did I? (laughs) 
uh, no, we're good, thanks. <laughs> and I know what she meant, and her heart was, am I clear? And the way it came out was, nope, we're good. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I, I, I'm sufficiently devoid of hope for anything ever happening here. <laughs> And one day, a couple of years from now, I'll meet Jesse Thielen and I'll marry her, okay? So, <laughs> upgrade. I'm kidding. That's me. That was an are we clear moment for me. And when we're clear on something, it makes all the difference. Can we agree on that? The question of are we clear is an essential question. Ignorance has been done away with and we now have a choice of response. And here we sit at the end of our eagerly desired series. And I think the question that is, should be on our hearts is are we clear? Are we clear? Are we clear? And if so, if we're clear about how God has designed us, if we're clear about how God has designed his church, if we're clear about the gifts that God has given us, how then do we make the choice to respond? Do we respond at all? And what does that response look like? We started this series asking the question, what is the spirit-empowered believer 10 weeks ago? And today, I feel like bringing this series into a land with the question, into land with the question, what is the spirit-empowered church? Which is, by the way, made up of spirit-empowered believers. So that's what we're going to look at today. What, what are the things that we as a local church are clear on in light of what God is, God's word has been showing to us? And how we respond as a church will be critical and will have ramifications for us stepping into all that God has for us within these walls, outside these walls, into our city, into other cities, our nation, and the nations of the world. It will be critical what we're clear on. And we don't need to be nervous about it today. It's going to be a joyous asking of the question, what are we, are we clear? It's not like the discipline I used to get, and unlike my past potential girlfriend, I do want to leave lots of room for hope and joy and celebration for us to, for us to step into together, all right? So I think we need to look at three simple questions considering where we are. And some of this will be a review of what's been preached. So if you have been here all 10 of the Sundays for the series and you somehow made that happen over a Chicago summer, congratulations. And my apologies, you're going to get some review. If not, you're going to get some review. And some of this is going to be looking forward. Three essential questions concerning God's design and his gifts to his church. Firstly, what are we clear on? Secondly, what choice does that present to us? And thirdly, how then do we respond? What are we clear on? What choice does that present to us? And how then are we going to respond? Okay? That's where we're going to be today. You guys okay? I know those fans get blowing and it kind of feels like you're on an airplane and you start dozing off. Just wave to me. Wave to me. So what are we clear on? This is a reminder of what God's word, only God's word, not our own imagination, only God's word has shown to us. What are we clear on? Lots of scripture, so follow me on the screen. Don't try to turn to everywhere. Firstly, I want to submit to you that we are clear that as the church of Jesus, we are one body. We are clear that as the church of Jesus, we are one body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the church in Corinth, says, just as one body, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, as different as you can possibly be. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And he goes on to say in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You are the body of Christ, 
and each one of you is a part of it. I love that God is forthcoming with us about his church. He says, actually, I designed it. I've constructed it. We don't have to wonder about who is putting this together. Verse 18, it's not on the screen, but Paul writes, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. So God has made his body, he's making, he's making the church of Jesus, he's placing everyone just as he wants them to be, and you are a part of it, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What I love about this, what I love about God being so forthcoming about his, the design of his body, is it dispels two very clear lies. The first lie that it dispels is the lie that you don't matter. Sorry, you do. <laughs> because God intentionally puts us together as the body exactly the way that he wants it. So it dispels the lie that you don't matter. The second lie that it dispels is that you matter most. You don't. (laughs) I don't. Oh, well, someone up on the stage who's preaching and doing this, they certainly matter more than me. Hogwash, if we're looking at the Bible. God puts his body together. And your function does not determine your value. What you can do, what you bring, how you can assess yourself, how you compare to others has absolutely nothing to do with your value. So don't ask those questions. You know where all the questions of value were answered? At the cross. Jesus' work on the cross speaks all of God's end, final, exclamation point, period, however else you can end the sentence on value and love. That's where those questions are answered. And what I also love about God's forthcoming about how he's designed his church is that he's not willy-nilly about it. This is not a fuzzy, a warm and fuzzy feel-good approach to something where isn't it awesome that God is putting things together the way that you would build a Lego set? Forget it. God's got a much more intense and heavenly purpose for his church. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. I'll kind of, uh, I'll kind of jump around here starting in verse 19. Paul, again, is writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, consequently, you, the believers, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Tell me you don't matter. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling, watch this, in which God lives by his spirit. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sorry, there's just nothing willy-nilly about how God constructs or intends for the church. You matter, and we are one body. And isn't it great when we see God's picture of the church that he's constructing? Isn't it, isn't it so wonderful and freeing to realize that your individual salvation is not God's actual ultimate intent for you? Did you know that? Oh, awesome, I'm saved. Let's just skate. No, God's not building an individual who's saved. God's building a body. He's building a church. And that needs to be our paradigm. Many parts born of one one Holy Spirit. We are clear that as Jesus' church, we are one body. We're clear. Are we clear? 
All right. We're also clear that God has given spiritual gifts to his church. Are we not? We're clear that the Bible speaks specifically of gifts from God the Father, gifts from Jesus Christ the Son, and gifts from the Holy Spirit. All of the triune God have given gifts to his church. Gifts from the Father, specifically, uh, we often refer to as grace gifts. You can read more about them in Romans 12 and 1 Peter chapter 4. Romans 12 verse 6 says, we all have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. Grace gifts are given by God the Father as a means of demonstrating his own goodness and grace. And they're supernatural, but they're often worked out in a practical ability. They're supernatural, but they often have a practical outworking. Gifts such as administration, teaching, service, giving, encouraging. Uh, Paul lists these in Romans 12, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it's good to know, it's incredible to know that God the Father has intended for each one of us a means, a gifting by which you and I actually partake in the administration of God's gift, of God's grace to one another. Isn't that cool? So in Ephesians 1, where Paul says that God has lavished his grace upon us in Christ Jesus, he also lets you and I partake in the, in the exponential experience of that to one another as you bless me and I bless you with the gifts that God has given us. His grace and his goodness is made manifold and just multiplies over and over in us. And you want to know something? You and I couldn't think that up. <laughs> you and I couldn't think that up. Come on. We couldn't. If I'm God, I want nothing to do with me administering his grace. Let's just be real. We couldn't think that up. It's incredible design. Gifts from the Father. Gifts from the Son, Jesus. These are often referred to as ministry gifts. Ephesians chapter 4. You saw in the announcements, Ephesians 4, ministry. What does that mean? Let's read in Ephesians 4 together, verse 11. So Christ himself, Jesus himself, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ministry gifts, gifts from Jesus himself, are skilled servants and leaders whose function is to equip and to prepare the church for Jesus' return to prepare and equip the church for Jesus' return. And we studied as we looked in the series, we, we drew that metaphor of that ancient Middle Eastern wedding where the, the bride would be making herself ready and the bridegroom would be away preparing a place for her and he would send back gifts to the bride. And they were gifts that were useful in making herself beautiful in anticipation of that one day where the bride, uh, bridegroom comes and says, today's the day, I'm taking you away. And she is gorgeous and beautiful and ready. And what is gorgeous and beautiful and ready in the eyes of Jesus, our bridegroom, it's unity and maturity in his church. Unity and maturity in his church. Maturity is nothing more than knowing Jesus and saying and trusting him more completely. Knowing Jesus and trusting him more completely. And unity is contended for as we all say yes more readily to what God has commanded and what he's speaking to us individually and as a local church. Unity and maturity and apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, these gifts from Jesus are intended to help us as the local church be more equipped in those things. Gifts from the Son. Gifts from the Holy Spirit. The controversial ones. 
the manifestation gifts, as they're often called. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, you can read more about these. And the gifts such as speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy, healing, miracles. Manifestation gifts are displays of God's power given by the Holy Spirit to whom he pleases, when he pleases, so that God's goodness and nature and will can be more fully known. Manifestation gifts are given by the Holy Spirit so that God's goodness, his nature, and will can be more fully known. They're gifts given, we, we, we discovered as we, as we studied this together a few months ago, that the Holy Spirit still readily, fully gives these gifts today, and he gives them to everyone. No one owns the specific gift of this or that, but God gives them, the Holy Spirit gives them to us, why? For the benefit and blessing of others. So when Chris is sick and I pray for healing and God gives me the gift of healing, but the gift is not intended for me, it's intended for Chris, for his benefit. And once again, I share in God's administration of his power and goodness and who he is, his nature and character are made more known. Sorry, you couldn't think that one up either. Amazing. We are clear that God gives gifts to his church. We're clear that our response to God's design and his gifts has to be faith. Our response has to be faith. Why? Because God designed his church. We didn't think it up. God designs his gifts. We didn't think them up. Therefore, if we're operating in what God has designed, we should and must have the humble expectation and confidence that God is going to do what he's able to do. And what he's designed this to be done, what he, what he has designed for him to do. We should have that humble expectation. You know what that expectation is called? Faith. It's the belief that God, you are able, you will do it, and, and you will do it in your way, the way that you've designed. And it's so clear that that's what God expects of us, that actually in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says it's actually impossible to please God without that faith. It's actually impossible to please God stepping outside of what he's designed in his church and in his gifts, expecting of him. You can't please him. We are clear that our response to God's design and his gifts to us is faith. You guys okay? It's hot again today. I knew I'd get a hot day to preach. We are clear that the most excellent way, in fact, God's only way, is love. We are clear that God's only way is love. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which, by the way, is not just a Hallmark card passage. It's right in the middle of the Bible speaking about spiritual gifts and the body being constructed as it is, as one body. Right smack dab in the middle of all that is where God chooses to really emphasize the topic of his love and, our, and how love is expressed. So let's read this together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Not I'm slightly lacking. Not I'm almost there. I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Superseding every gift, penetrating all of God's design, is his one and only way, and that's love. If we step out of love, we have negated trying to be in God's design. I have nothing. Full, sacrificial love. It's the love of Jesus that reckons someone as God sees them, and that is of eternal value, specifically, fearfully, wonderfully created by him. Isn't it great that you and I are exempt from assigning value to people? We're exempt. It's above our pay grade. You and I don't get to walk around assigning value, saying this group of people, this type of person, this person over here, this person in this part of the world, this, this skin color, this, this, any of that. We don't, get, we don't need to assign value. Just free yourself of it. God's already done it. It's already been answered. Where? At the cross. Again. And it's also not the world's idea of love. You know what the, you know what the world's idea of love is, don't you? The world's idea of love is agreement. You express your love for me by agreeing with me. And if you disagree with me, then you what? You hate me. That's the world's idea of love. Well, guess what? You're exempt from that too. Because you can show the love of Jesus that is God's idea. And that is to everyone, anyone, everywhere, everywhere. God's idea is the fullness of life is available to you in my son, Jesus Christ. And you and I, the church, get to walk around with that expression of love. And it's God's only way. It's God's only way. We're clear that God's only way is love. We're also clear that we should eagerly desire God's gifts. We're clear that we should eagerly desire God's gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, the first verse. Follow the way of love. Makes sense, coming right after chapter 13. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Oh, man, we were all comfortable with that verse until that last two words. Ah. Ah. Eagerly desire the gifts, especially prophecy. How? As we follow the way of love, we can't step out of that or we're a clanging gong, a resounding whatever, loudness, yuck, nothing. But why prophecy? Why especially prophecy? Well, again, what is the intention of God's gifts? The intention of God's gifts is not for our own fame or renown or for me to own them or have them or to walk around with it in my hip pocket. The intention of God's gifts is for the benefit of others through us, right? So we desire all the gifts, but especially prophecy because, and this isn't on the screen, but uh, verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 14 says, because the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The prophetic gift is actually only able to be expressed for the strengthening, encouraging, and comfort of others. That's why we eagerly desire, especially prophecy. And the prophetic ministry of the Holy Spirit, when God speaks to us in the moment in accordance with his word, it does something very, very incredible. The prophetic ministry dispels the lie of God's distance. And it reacquaints our heart with the intimate reality of his nearness. In one second. Because God is speaking. The prophetic ministry dispels the lie of God's distance and reacquaints our heart intimately with his nearness. So we eagerly desire God's gifts for the sake of his glory and within his design, following his only way of love as he works through us for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. We are clear that we eagerly desire 
God's gift. Last thing that we're clear on. Sorry, second to last thing. Who's preaching? We are clear that our every boast is in Jesus Christ, as Steve preached last week. We are clear that our every boast is Jesus Christ. We revel in God's design of his body. We eagerly desire his gifts. We respond in faith. We follow the way of love. But our boast, our bluster, our, if I could sacrilegiously use the word arrogance, our confidence, our abject celebration is only in one name, and that's Jesus. When it all gets celebrated, when it all is being rejoiced over, it's one name, Jesus. Our boast is in him. Galatians 6.14 tells us, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Jesus is our attention and our all-consuming focus. Boasting on Jesus, by the way, is what the Holy Spirit is always doing. Boasting on Jesus is what the Holy Spirit is always doing. How do we know that? Jesus said that's what the Holy Spirit would do. In John 16, when he's describing to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come, he, re- he relates it like this in verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit is in the business of glorifying the Son. Boasting on Jesus. Boasting on Jesus is also what is currently happening in the throne room of heaven right now, by the way. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 13. I know I'm reading a lot of scriptures, but I want to show you, I want to communicate to you that I'm not, this is not James's reasoning. I want the Bible to do the heavy lifting, and I want us to just look at it and say, uh, well, that's absolutely, it's clear from God's word, because what's the question we're asking? Are we clear? Revelation chapter 5, then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And you get the feeling that if there were more words to describe it, they would use them. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. You and I will be boasting on Jesus forever and ever and ever. Let's start now. I mean, why do anything else now, really? (laughs) We are clear that our every boast is the person of Jesus. Now, lastly, on what we're clear on. We're clear that God's purposes and power are summed up in the gospel. We're clear that God's purposes and power are summed up in the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, Verse 8 states, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. I know so many of you know these verses so well, but let them strike you afresh. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, made righteous by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I mean, we could preach for weeks just on God's redemptive work. 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that purchases for us. It is no wonder that at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul starts out by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm just not. Because it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. So I'm not ashamed of it. God's purposes and his power are not summed up anywhere else but the gospel. So what are we clear on? Are we clear on God's design of his church as one body? Are we clear on God's gifts freely given from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Are we clear that our response to those has to be faith? Has to be humbly expecting of God within his designs? Are we clear that God's only way is love? Are we clear that our desire for his gifts is eager? Are we clear that our boast is always in Jesus? And are we clear that God's power and purposes are summed up in the gospel? And if we are clear, I think we're starting to get a picture of the spirit-empowered church. If we're clear, I think we're starting to get a picture of the spirit-empowered church. And this are we clear moment, remember, what does an are we clear moment do? It presents us with a choice. Presents us with a choice. Are we going to respond or are we going to move forward as if we weren't ever clear at all? And remember, it's not heavy. I'm leaving room for hope. We said at the beginning of this series, on the very first day, Steve preached and he, he gave us a, a statement. He said, we cannot hope to see a dying world come, to, come alive through a lifeless, powerless gospel of our own interpretation or preference. So here's our choice if we're clear on God's design for his spirit-empowered church. And this is an individual choice on your part and mine, and it's also a corporate choice for us as church in the city. Here's our choice. In light of God's design and purposes, we can choose to say yes in obedience to what we see in God's word for his glory, or we can choose a partial, ultimately lifeless substitute in which we prioritize our own comfort and try to pick and choose where we say yes to God. I'll read that again. In light of God's design and purposes, we can choose to say yes in obedience to what we see in God's word for his glory, or we can choose a partial, ultimately lifeless substitute in which we prioritize our own comfort and try to pick and choose where we say yes to God. And as for me, let me choose the fullness of God's intention for me. As for me, let me choose the fullness of God's intention for me as a spirit-empowered believer. And as for us, church in the city, let us choose the fullness of God's intention for us, a spirit-empowered church, because we're clear, and the choice is also clear. So we know we're clear, or at least I hope we're clear, we understand the choice in front of us. So what's the response? Well, and I think there's maybe lots of responses, but to be a good preacher who is trained in the Bible Belt, I'm only going to give you three. If you want more, let's grab lunch. No, I'm kidding. Three responses to this choice that I think are indicative of a spirit-empowered church. The spirit-empowered church reckons only Jesus as God's redemptive answer. The Spirit-empowered church considers Jesus to be God's only redemptive answer. And you say, well, of course we do. Come on, what else would we think? Well, hang on just a second. Let's open this up for just a minute. Let's read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
verse 1. And Paul is describing to Corinth, he, to the church in Corinth, he's reminding them how he was when he first visited them. And he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and him crucified. I know that phrasing is kind of ancient and weird. Here, let me unpack it for a second. The brokenness and sinfulness of man infiltrates everything, does it not? There's not an aspect of our existence that doesn't ultimately trace its brokenness back to our sinfulness, right? That, and that sinfulness and brokenness is going to be expressed in every single thing that man thinks, says, does, puts his hand to, creates, destroys, everything. That sinfulness is being outworked because of the fall and our sinful separation from God. And we see this, we, I mean, we could, I could all go around the room and you could all give me something different. Social, socially, re, uh, re, relationally, politically, economically, internationally, racially. We, th- we see things expressed in the, we see the brokenness and the hateful sinfulness of man expressed and taken to its nth degree. But the redemptive work of Jesus in the gospel is the only gateway to healing and deliverance and restoration in all of them. The redemptive work of Jesus in the gospel is the only gateway to full deliverance and healing and restoration in every single way that the hateful, sinful brokenness of man is expressed. Not one of those ways that it's expressed is the doorway. The gospel is the central doorway because... The gospel takes care of the root old creation that carries the sinfulness. And when that old creation is made new in Jesus Christ, a different expression begins to take shape. A different expression begins to take shape. So the spirit-empowered church will understand that the gospel of Jesus is God's only redemptive answer. And it's the only answer that is needed. And it's the only answer that can be fully expressed into every place where the tentacles of man's sinfulness have wrapped itself around every expression of our existence. The gospel of Jesus cuts it off at the root, and the Spirit-empowered church reckons Jesus as God's only redemptive answer. The Spirit-empowered church expects, in faith, for God's power to win hearts. The Spirit-empowered church expects, in faith, for God's power to win hearts. Have any of you ever read the book Don Quixote? Of course you haven't. So, but if you're familiar with the story, Don Quixote is this, uh, he's this sort of washed up uh, old uh, former knight who still tries to hold to all the bounds of chivalry. And he considers himself a noble and uh, high character knight still, but he's washed up. And whenever he gets confronted with it by people who are trying to point out his very obvious shortcomings... He just reminds them that it is the prerogative of charm and beauty to win hearts. And he thinks he carries that charm and beauty. Well, let me tell you, it's the prerogative of God's power to win hearts. It's the prerogative of Jesus to win hearts. Let's continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, something I have in common with the Apostle Paul, But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
So I came to you not, with, not, not leaning on my words, not leaning on my arguments and, and the way I can eloquently put things. No, what I came to you leaning on is, God, I am depending on a demonstration of your power. I have faith within your design for you to move. And when these people see that, their faith is only going to be in you, not me. Good news. Here's why that's important. Do you ever get the feeling there's an argument going on? Just generally. You ever been on Facebook? You ever feel like people disagree about a thing or two? I saw a shirt the other day that says, congratulations, your Facebook status changed my opinion. (laughs) Ever notice that not only is there an argument going on, but nobody ever really seems to win it. Nobody wins the argument. They're only successful at losing people, right? You see that those arguments happen, and then you, what, what happens? Well, I'm just never talking to that person again. Perfect. God has anointed the church because of his power. God has anointed the church to be the only entity in the history of history that actually gets to step out of that mire. That gets to step out of that mire of endless human toiling and arguing and tit for tat and, and this and, oh, and, and gets to step out, out of it and say, God's power is here. And it's the argument ender. You are loved, you are valued. Jesus is not far, he is near. And the church is the only entity that gets exempt from the endless arguing. We're exempt from the fate of the hapless human toiling because God wants to intervene with his power instead of our convincing. And I'm not saying conversations and discussions are bad. I'm saying where does it really, really, really rest? It rests on, I didn't come to you with wise or persuasive words. I came to you trusting for a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And if this is true, we must be calling on God for his power. For salvations, for deliverance, for our enemies, sometimes right next to them. By laying hands on the sick. By speaking prophetically to the broken. By speaking the truth of the gospel, no matter the consequences. Calling forth the power of God, not because it's just a great idea, but because it's within his design for us that we do so. It's his intention. God's power, as I mentioned, is the argument ender so that people's faith rests not on our explanations or our arguments, but it rests on Jesus and Jesus alone. On Jesus and Jesus alone. And the spirit-empowered church expects in faith for God's power to win hearts. Lastly, you guys have been patient with me. Thank you. The spirit-empowered church actively chooses to point to the person of Jesus. The spirit-empowered church actively chooses to point to the person of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is the longing of every heart. Jesus is the longing of every heart, and the world is completely incapable of asking for him in their own strength. He's the longing of every heart, and the world can't ask, the world doesn't know how to ask for him. The spirit-empowered church must point to him. Must point to him. Mark, a few weeks ago, preached out of Acts 3 when Peter and John were heading into the temple and they met the, the lame beggar. And I want to read this account very quickly. And I, and I want to point out something that, I, that, they, that they do that I think carries the heart of the Spirit-empowered church. And then we're going to bring it into land. In Acts 3, one day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. 
Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter and said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Look at us, Peter said. There's a, there's a holy, anointed, somewhat knuckleheaded gumption that says, look at us. Why? Look at us, the church? No, 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 no. Look at us because we will show you the person of Jesus Christ. Not, not look at church in the city or, heaven forbid, look at James. Look at us because what I do have, I give unto you. Look at us and see Jesus. He's not far off. He's near. And you will experience him right now. We don't have an argument for you. We don't have a perspective for you. We don't have an opinion for you. We have Jesus for you. We have a person. We have a person for you. And that's a daily choice for a spirit-empowered church. And after the man is healed, Peter and John, they go right into the temple. And where, where, where are God's power and purposes summed up? In the gospel. And they start sharing it right away. Because they trust God's power to win hearts. And they reckon Jesus as God's only redemptive answer. And so people place their faith in Jesus, who saw a demonstration of the Spirit's power, who watched arguments and brokenness fall away in light of Jesus, God's only redemptive answer, actively and front-footedly shown to them by Spirit-empowered believers. If I had a mic, I'd drop it. Just kidding. Oh, that we would be that church. That we would be those believers, reckoning these things as just the truth that honestly we go to the stakes for. Not going to change it. And it's essential that we be that church, especially in this present age. And next, next week, we're going to start a new series. It's going to be a series through the book of 1 Peter. A series called A Royal Priesthood. We're going to look at the idea of what it means to be the body of Christ Spirit-empowered, reckoning Jesus as God's only redemptive answer and pointing to him always in this present hostile, pagan, oppressive age. A royal priesthood, the body of Christ in 1 Peter. So are we clear? And in light of us being clear, what's the choice? Yes to the fullness of God's intention or a partial substitute where I'm picking and popping? And if we are that spirit-empowered church, how do we respond? I trust that we will respond in the ways that we see in God's word. And I'm going to hand it back over to Mark in just a minute. And he's going to um, take us into a time of ministry. But I, I want to make a couple of invitations for the ministry time. If you desire to stand in faith and boldness for God's power to move through you, I, I want to make sure you come up. And let's pray for you. If you desire, if you desire to say yes to the, full, to the fullness of God's intention for you, if you've been you've been keeping some of that close to your chest or you've been walking in a little bit of fear on that, I want to make sure you come down and we pray for you. Some of you, I believe right now, God is saying to you, there is more for you by saying yes to me in these things. And I want to make sure that if that's happening, that you come down and pray.
And lastly, if you've heard me preaching today and you're like, I, what is it, knowing Jesus, what does that mean? And you would like to talk more about what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, being taken from being an enemy of God to walking fully in his life, I want to talk to you, I want to pray for you, and I want you to come down and see me. Don't shirk back. Let's be the spirit-empowered church in accordance with God's word. Good? I left some room for hope, right? Okay, perfect. Still hurts. Still hurts. Mark.